Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Limits what you're actually able to do professionally or socially. The relationship between science and magic. Like, if you never get nervous, that's almost a problem. And that's like a plot device to show something about human nature. Huh. That's like, I don't know, that, that's kind of that's cool. But I did go to a new taco truck today. Oh, trying new taco trucks. How does this compare to your normal? Yeah. Uh, significantly better, actually. Didn't think it was possible. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, uh, it was, it was what? Six tacos for five bucks. They were bigger than what I'm used to. And it was like pulled pork carnitas, as opposed to the other place I go, all of the different meats and fillings or stuff are just completely like shredded, diced up. So yeah, I was, I was very pleased. That sounds great. That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I'm trying to make the saga continues of me trying to make spicy apple pie. And I think my first one was a solid like six and a half. I, remember I made another that. one. And it went down, I think, to like a five and a half. So I'm trying to get it right. But it just seems to be going worse. But I will be making spice like spicy apple pie. I will, I'm coming for mom's throne. It is going to happen. Stay tuned. Is <sighs> she wait? But, is she the one who's made it before? I I remember you trying no. to make it. Okay, I remember you trying to make it one time, and like the filling, if I remember, was perfectly fine and good. But it wasn't the crust wasn't cooked fully or something like that. Yeah, I did that again. <laughs> so at least uh, at least I make the same mistakes. Um, but yeah, that was kind of just what happened the last time. But I'm trying to use a, a spicy. Uh, I don't want to give away anything. I don't want any listeners out there copping my style before I've even figured out exactly what I'm doing. Um, so, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'll give Tim the recipe. He can post it on his sub stack. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a recipe blog. Um, but other than that, dude, just uh new new classes started up. Yeah. I think we didn't record last week, which meant the last week of our other classes we didn't get to talk about. But right. I'm in a new class called uh abnormal psychology, which is going over like different uh, kind of understanding different, I guess, abnormal mental health states. So I'm in week two currently, um, and it's it has been a lot more reading than I'm used to, but it's been a blast. You're still in like C.S. Lewis and or I'm sorry, the life and history of C.S. Lewis. We have to say the whole name. <laughs> yeah. Um, understanding the English language. Yeah. History. I remember your other classes. History of science and the human. Advanced fiction writing and. Gosh, it sounds so dorky when I say advanced fiction writing as if, you know, I have ever done it before taking this class. And there's one more. Uh, Oh, American literature. I think that's all five of them. So, yeah, it's uh, I've got. I think only three weeks left of classes and one of those I'm 
missing because we're going to Texas. So for me, I've only got three weeks left. I don't know how you just started and you're going to have what is it? It's an A week term, right? Yeah, you only have three weeks left of your classes. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't. Do I have a break? Maybe not. I need to check when my spring classes start. By the way, I love that. I love that like a recurring theme on this podcast is the fact that you have eight week terms. I've, I think I just brought that up for like the fourth time. That's how I start every episode. Still, it's, it's good to know, I guess. Yeah. But, but yeah, so our normal psychology is, it's been a ton of fun. Um, the class is kind of broken up between like textbook reading, but then, so for those of you who either are thinking about going back to school or in school, um, you might know about discussion posts. So you do your reading, you write your discussion post every week. It's kind of like, hey, classmates, here's what I'm learning. But I love this class because along with a textbook, we have a case book where it's like, I don't know, 20 different cases of people who have, I guess, therapists working with clients who have like abnormal, like mental health states or are working through something. And then you have to read through there's questions at the end that further like like I, I think I did mine on a girl who had uh, I think it was social anxiety disorder. And the questions at the end were like, why do you think that this is becoming a more prevalent condition? And what do you think leads into it? Like, what's the difference between this disorder and this disorder? Like what makes them happen together? What makes them happen separately? And I I don't know. I was doing that the other week or actually I was doing that a couple of days ago and I just felt like, yeah, I really, I actually really enjoy this. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm heading in the right direction. That's good. When you, when you say abnormal, that makes me think of schizophrenia or you said what social anxiety disorder Yes. So is, yep. is that what it is? It's like the the book or the standard or whatever it is that psychologists have of like the list of disorders. Uh, yes. Which I actually don't need to have that book for this class. It's recommended reading. I've thought about getting it because it would sure be helpful. Um, I'm definitely citing it in some of my papers uh, using other other sources. Um, but that's the diagnostic statistic manual for mental disorders. I think they actually just came out with a revision to the newest edition like a couple months ago. So we're making history. Um, but yeah, so this class is kind of just like general education on some of those disorders, like depressive disorders. And I'm trying to think, okay, this week I read about, uh, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders and phobias, uh, panic attacks, trauma, well, some trauma, uh, somatic disorders, and then dissociative and uh, dissociative disorders. It was a lot of reading this week. So those are classifications that all of them fall into, or that's just how the you know book broke it up? Oh, yeah. So those are just that's just how the book broke up these disorders. All of these disorders would fall under like abnormal psychology. Um, but I guess I, 
something I thought was interesting first off is just the I think the first week we spent some time talking about the word abnormal like abnormal psychology or an abnormal mental state because like when you hear abnormal you normally think like bad like that word just gets used on almost like synonymously as like bad or worse than um but I was writing in a paper kind of about this, about how we have to be able to draw the line. And I'm trying to think of working with clients or working with the family of clients, like being able to say, when I refer to abnormal mental states, when you maybe you're researching or you're doing like bibliotherapy, like you're reading at home, psychoeducation, whatever. When you see this term, you need to resist the temptation to think abnormal is bad. There's something I am bad or there's something like wrong with my loved one. They're bad. Abnormal isn't like a philosophical term of like good or bad, evil and and righteousness. It is a it's a medical it's like a, a medical term. It just means like there's a there's a normal mental state and this is abnormal. It's not bad. It's just different. And there can be treatment to get it back to like a normal state. So an abnormal mental state is essentially anything that is not just like it's not just something that falls outside of a social norm it is something that is not a reaction a normal reaction to a stressor cuz like you have someone lose a child or you have someone go through a, an intense trauma they're not going to react in a normal state of mind this and an abnormal mental state is something that is like consistent. Excuse me, I'm so burpy. It's consistent. It's not just a social taboo. It is something that makes the person who has that mental state, their lives, their daily lives more difficult and harder to go through because of this mental state. So like social anxiety disorder like to feel essentially a panic attack whenever you're in social situations, that's going to make your life difficult and harder and is something you should receive treatment for. Um, if you just, maybe you have a panic disorder, you've fallen into this routine of like, whenever you see a certain thing, this panic attack, like symptom just comes upon you. That's going to make your life harder. Uh, if you have a dissociative disorder where you just kind of turn off, like that's going to make your life harder. So it kind of helps to help clients understand, hey, like, you're not bad. We just need to help like a doctor would help. Like, you're not evil because you have cancer. You just have cancer. So we need to help you get back to health. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I kind of rambled there for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, no, because going with the cancer analogy, as a doctor, you also wouldn't not clearly communicate to the patient if they have cancer. Like that has to be understood so that we can treat it. And so kind of what I'm hearing you say exactly. is like abnormal, you know, that I'm not calling you abnormal. We're saying that this thing that's going on is not the normal state. And if we want to move you to that, then we need to uh, address that, I guess. I mean, that's not the main point of what you're saying, but, but using yeah, I, that I term. Think well, yeah, I think the mental health field still feels 
abstract abstract but also i think closely tied to like more of the core of a person's being if that makes sense Mm. like having like if you have like a social anxiety disorder well you're shy or you're backwards or you know it's something that people talk about about how like you just can't respond it seems like there's more something wrong with you than if if someone broke their leg or if someone had like diabetes like those are just things that you have but it seems like with mental disorders it's more like who you are it's like there's it's it's something in your head it's something in your brain and maybe this is just more of an american thing we equate like the brain with the person so if there's something wrong yeah. with your brain there's something wrong with the person i didn't read that anywhere that's just me shooting from the hip yeah well okay so also though talk about the word disorder then because you know social anxiety for example i am relatively shy and reserved and I am also, I think, confident enough in myself. But when I was younger, I was like super anxious and whatever. And there are still times I like tap into that. So so what I'm asking is, when is it a disorder versus when is it normal life experience? And is it. uh, Does does calling it a disorder mean that you have to like, oh, my gosh, you have some awful experience before it can be classified or is it the sort of thing that we go in and out of? Um, Good question. Um, So, yes, you're 100 percent right in saying so. Let's stick with social anxiety disorder, which the abbreviation for social anxiety disorder. Love it. It's sad. And that is sad. Like, I don't want to tell someone they have an SAD. (laughs) Is it? I don't know if you guys have talked about this at all. I always thought sad was seasonal affective disorder. Like seasonal. I haven't heard that one. Okay. That's the one I'm more familiar with, but that might be like an online thing. That's not real. Maybe it could, it could be real too. That's the thing. There's, there's only so many letters you can abbreviate down to. True. Um, so let's stick with a social anxiety disorder. Um, the the difference between normal like anxiety and shyness and an SAD is that like everyone experiences like you like you were saying some amount of shyness. Like I can remember in high school when they made me sing like for our high school's like American Idol competition. Like I was shaking. I was sweating. My heart was racing. Like I was very anxious. Like me and you have both have done public communication. That makes you very anxious, but you're still able to get through it or you're able to endure it. You might be anxious leading up to it, but it's not this. It's not going to. When the hippocampus, which is kind of in charge, no, the amygdala, when the amygdala in your brain is handling like fear response, you might have a little bit of stress but not so much that you go into fight or flight. Um, for an SAD, you will consistently have like fight or flight responses around social, like social situations to the point where it limits what you're actually able to do professionally or socially or like even like with your family. 
um it it's it's not just like a personality trait it's an actual like hindrance in your life so some examples um two of the cases i looked at that had sad's um one was a adolescent girl who like couldn't eat in front of people cuz she was so nervous about being scrutinized for like for the way she ate she couldn't she dropped out of like school clubs she stopped playing her instrument cuz she couldn't perform in front of people um she still had like a couple friends but even like at home like she wasn't ordering her own food uh so through through therapy she kind of gained that confidence back and she she didn't flip the switch though she didn't go from like being more shy and introverted to being like 100% extrovert um she was just able to go about her life and when she was anxious she learned tools to cope with that anxiety in more healthy ways cuz i guess where the disorder comes from is you learn maladaptive or unhealthy coping mechanisms to that fight or flight response um mm-hmm. if that makes sense like another case i had uh was a college student who was talking with two other college students several days later saw them and the call it that other students forgot who they were and their name and then called them a stalker and that was enough of a like an experience for this already shy person to like completely like whenever they saw a member of the opposite sex and interacted with them, not just walked by, but if someone at the library was like, Hey, like, do you remember the book for class? They would just like go flush red. Their heart would beat like crazy. And they would normally just like run away from those situations because they learned like people are judging me so hard. People are going to forget who I am. People are going to call me a stalker. So I just need to escape. If that makes sense. (laughs) It, uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Actually, I feel like I could be one of your studies that your class is doing because going back to school, I mean, you probably feel the same way, at least to some extent going back to school. There has been a lot of like funny psychology and, uh, Yeah, I I guess I don't know. So like I was saying, I used to be super. I used to get a lot more anxious around like uh, crowds and going to new places. That was really the one going to new places was it. Uh, And I kind of grew out of that. I feel like around probably around like 18 years old and I haven't struggled with it much since then. But going back to school being. Now 27, I was what? Okay, so I was 25 when I started a line, 26 when I moved down here. Now I'm 27. And it's like been different every semester. I've gone through different phases of it. Hmm. Like phases like, like first, what? Yeah, so speaking in terms of age, starting school at 25, I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. It wasn't even a thought in my mind. Then. I turned 26 and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm like, I'm older than everybody else here. Still not a problem, but I just noticed for the first time. And then I turned 27 and I'm like, you know what? I got to 
get out of here. Like, this is not, and obviously I'm happy with what I'm doing. You know, I'm happy that I'm getting the degree and that I'm down here. It's not that I regret it, but I'm like, man, I don't need to be here a day longer than I need to be. So that's, that's sort of the age level. But then on the social level, I came down here and I was new. I was a transfer student. I was, I didn't know anybody. And so even though, okay, so I I came down and I was more like anxious probably than I had ever been and, and not terribly so, but more than I was used to. There was Uh, a heightened amount of it. Yeah. And then something kind of clicked when I came back down for, uh, the, the second year after being home for the summer, I came back down and I was like, wait a second. I'm the upperclassman. I'm the one who's been here. I'm the senior. I'm the one who has a career and a mortgage. Like, why am I afraid of these, you know, 19 year olds? (laughs) And it, it totally changed overnight. And then that was year two, but then semester two of year two, I went from being completely quiet, not talking to anybody to like, now I'm a lot more social. And so it's just been really funny. It's so much has happened in like a compressed period of time. Uh, and I've been like kind of trying to analyze myself. And then you're talking about uh, social anxiety. So I'm wondering, probably nothing I went through would have been a disorder, though, because according to what you're saying. I wasn't I was it wasn't hindering me a and B. It. I was taking positive stresses. I wasn't turning them into negative stresses, if that's the way to say it. What What do you think? No, yeah. I, I think, um, like you were saying, I think your experience is more, like would be more typical um, to like a healthy way of coping with that new anxiety. You're in a completely new state. You don't know anybody. Like, you have none of your like friends there with you that is going to create a certain amount of anxiety in these social situations. But I think where you differ from someone who would have like an SAD is you, you kind of came about healthy coping mechanisms on your own, whether you already had learned those coping mechanisms through high school or through college or through work, um, or whether you just kind of arrived at those like currently, like you naturally had the self-efficacy, which is a way of saying the the ability to do that. Um, whereas maybe there's a student will take someone similar to you, same age, same situation. Um, maybe in their mind, they further withdraw. They become hyper like fixated on what other people are thinking about them to the point of they almost try never to talk or they worry about even talking to a fellow classmate because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so much older. They're going to think I'm a creep. They're going to think I'm a weirdo. Oh my gosh, those people over there are laughing. They're probably laughing at me. I have to like get out of here. I'm going to stop coming to class. I'm going to stop raising my hand. Like that. That's where it can more fall, which I think is your point with the positive and negative stressors. The stressors are still there for both people, but it's how they internalize the stressors and then work through them if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like, 
I'm just trying to put this in terms of stories. So the other day, it gosh, it might've been yesterday. I don't remember, but I showed up 15 minutes early to a class and just like waltzed into the room. And there was another class going on, another professor, <laughs> whole other classroom full of people. And the professor like looked at me so weird as I, I just opened the door and like poked my head in and then went right back out. But I then just stood outside the door and let the whole class walk out past me and honestly didn't, didn't care. But I have friends and classmates down here who would have died if that happened. And that's more in the territory of like, you know, I guess I don't want to diagnose anybody on this podcast. So I'm, I'm slowing my roll a little bit, but, but the point being, yeah, like you said, I was able to deal with the embarrassment and not really care, even though I'm more on the reserve side. I don't know. No, that makes sense. And I think, too, like for an SAD or any diagnosis, it's normally not just, oh, you're really, really shy. Like there, there's a long there's a list of things you have to meet. Like, I think the minimum criteria is like four or five out of a list of like 10 things. So that's where like the normal yeah. part comes in as well. Where it's not just you have one That's thing. exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, there, there is like a list of symptoms. I was going to ask if there were like, right. Which which I think helps. So it's not just your gut feeling. Exactly. Because everyone will have those. Like everyone will have things that make them nervous. Even the most confident people out there should be at least somewhat nervous. Like if you never get nervous, that's almost a problem. Right. That I mean, that is being what a psychopath psychopathy maybe i haven't got i haven't read that chapter yet <laughs> i am only pulling from my knowledge of movies so yeah but also i don't really want to get into too much of what the descriptors of those things are like what the diagnosis things are because personally i i feel like and i think we talked about this a little while ago Maybe it was on mic, maybe it was off mic, but I would personally get worried that if I started reading off the list of like symptoms of an SAD, if people out there would diagnose themselves as having it and then start manifesting it when they didn't have it beforehand, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, Which definitely. Is, and I... That's the thing that I think a lot of people do. Oh, yeah. Like on YouTube, I, I watched a video the other day and now I just my whole YouTube feed is like four signs of this five signs. You might have this this disorder or, or here's six signs of a this or here's two signs of a that. And I'm like, man, because it's a tricky thing because we need to be able to educate the populace on these disorders because they're not like, I think I was reading about a study from 2017 that was taken over like 10,000 like adolescents. So like 13 to 18. And I think in that range, 40% of them had 
some kind of mental disorder that caused like this like significant like distress in their life, made their life more difficult. And I think wow. of that 40%, 60% of them um had like an additional diagnosis as well. I this is me quoting from my head. I'm more confident in the 40% than I am the 60%. Um so they these things can be common. Like the other thing too is like these things aren't a death sentence. And if we can catch them, the earlier we can catch them, the better. Like the more, like the way our brains, the wiring in our brain works, the more we practice those things, the more ingrained they become. So if we can catch them quicker, awesome. Like they can avoid that whole, that whole autopilot programming. But when educating, do we run a risk at giving people a program to follow and self-diagnose themselves and live that out. It's almost like a, it's kind of like it's kind of like Adam and Eve in the apple, you know? Like you give people this wisdom, how are they going to use it? Are they going to use it to say, ah, "I don't think I have that." Or someone going to say, "Well, I am shy. Do I worry about what people think? Do I worry about like even when it comes to like dissociative disorders, which is where like multiple personalities can fall in as well, like there has been an uptick. I think in the 1980s, the average amount of personalities someone with a dissociative disorder would have is was three. But after a case was published about someone like and was popular, a movie was made about it, about someone who had 16 personalities. Well, then the average number of cases shot up to 12. And people are wondering, like, is it – and cases have been increasing. So is it that, like, dissociative disorders are just naturally increasing or are people, like, seeing these things and then kind of leaning into them and creating them? Um, is it that counselors are seeing it and – Asking questions in a way that kind of creates it, like creates the diagnosis themselves. Um, there's there's so much tricky stuff that goes into it. Yeah, I I think it is tricky, and I don't. I mean, I don't know the answer as if that's not clear. But I was wondering about this, so I was listening to a podcast the other day. The the guest is a writer and he was talking about how he uh, was diagnosed at a young age or something with ADHD, I believe. Okay. And the host was saying, oh, wow. He was like, I'm, I'm not diagnosed. And he's like, I don't want to diagnose myself, but my friends who work in this field say like, eh, yeah, you, if you took the test, you probably would be. And they were talking about just commonalities about their uh, experience and whatever. And at the same time I was listening to it, I'm like, that sounds a lot like me too. Yeah. Uh, I thought the same like thing. I, yeah. So I personally, I take forever to read things. Um, I remember in like 11th grade, I remember this really clearly. We, the teacher was like, okay, read, you know, this passage, you know, it was probably like two or three pages or something. And then we'll talk about it when everybody's done. 
And I remember looking up and everybody was done. And I was only like a third of the way through the passage. Mm -hmm. And so I made it all the way to 11th grade without ever even having that realization. And, you know, I was like well behaved. So I think that, you know, I didn't have quite the same. Uh, I don't know. There's like there's the stereotype of the kid who has a learning disorder. And so he's really poorly behaved. And so I didn't get caught up in that. Anyway, all of that to say, I was I was thinking about that, listening to this podcast, and I was wondering if that was a good thing or not for me. Like, would I have been better or worse off if I would have, you know, taken some test that a probably would have given me some good tools? Like, here's how you deal with these things, you know, things that I've had to learn very slowly and over time. That would have been the positive, but then. The, the negative would have been kind of what you're saying. Like, is there a stigma? Is this like a thing that you put on yourself as a young person and you don't know how to shrug it off? And I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. Because it can be like, it can be like a stigma. At least I know it was when we were kind of in school. I think there was a stigma. I mean, I know amongst the students, there was a stigma for like, ADHD and stuff like that. I do kind of sometimes wonder if some kids get that diagnosis. And whereas for you, you like coped with it. It's almost like permission. That That's why it's so in it's, it's so individual because some kids might just, take that. Well, it's, it's how the kid deals with it themselves, but it's also, yeah, how their parent deals with it, how their teachers yep. treat them. And so there's so many variables. And their like peers. It's really hard to say. Yeah, exactly. It probably is completely different case by case. And I do feel like nowadays there is more, at least amongst the, the younger generation, uh, maybe like millennial parents, I think more people are becoming aware of like, mental disorders and and how to help people through them. And it's not like a weird thing as much. So I think that socially people are able to get those tools more. Um, but like at the same time, I, I I've read some studies on like. Uh, I think what was it called? Rapid onset um, bulimia amongst like adolescents. Where like if in a group of girls, uh, one or two of them in the group has an eating disorder, then there is like a significantly increased chance that girls in that friend group who don't have an eating disorder will develop an eating disorder. Wow. Um, just through like hearing someone else talk about why they developed an eating disorder and hearing them talk about like the practice of it. And maybe even seeing like some surface level benefit of it, or maybe even being introduced to the idea of like body dysphoria and hating them, like hating their body, like in the amount of weight they have or they don't have, like there's just a, a bigger chance of that. So like we can't, and this is the difficulty because we can't just be like, well, okay, so anyone with an eating disorder isolate them, get them out of the schools. No, that would be terrible. 
but also how do we educate everyone without causing like a mental health contagion? Which weirdly enough, someone was telling me that Stark, like Stark County and like the 2017 area, I think. Um, let like the national health agency listed the mental health condition in schools of Stark County as like a contagion. Yeah. I, I remember that time. Cause I think about then I was still working with the younger age groups at the church. And so I just remember picking up on that and hearing, I mean, like, uh, suicides and there was like the one school that i don't know if you remember this it would have been a school shooting but somehow the kid got caught before it happened yes yep so yeah i mean kind of (laughs) that's a dark example but even just remembering myself being like a teenager like stuff spreads you know you're impressionable and if your friend is doing something then you think that's normal And if he's the only person doing it, like you don't step back and say like, wait, why does only one person out of a hundred people that I know think this is normal? Like, you're not really thinking about it in those rational terms. You're like, oh, well, he has to keep it a secret, but everybody is dealing with this or I don't know. I, I think what's important is, so you started off talking about abnormal mental conditions or whatever the exact word was. But that implies normal. And I think that is the healthy part is not just saying I have this thing. I have X. But reminding people or introducing into the conversation like, hey, this is not normal. And that implies that there is a normal. And that's where we're trying to get you. And understanding that you know, not all, uh, not all stresses are negative. Like, I I think just framing the conversation in the way that that you started it, which is saying like, Hey, this isn't normal. And we want to get you to normal. Like we want to help you out. I think. Yeah. Relating it to health terms. Right. Right. Like not relating it to like philosophical terms. Cause like even you had mentioned like a school shooter. Um, if, if, we can if we can identify someone who has a like like a mental disorder that might lead to that well we could like get that person treatment and you would never even think that that would ever be possible for them but it's just that that disorder which can kind of create a vacuum then for other disorders can like excuse me uncared for it can spiral out of control to the point where that person reaches that limit. Um, so like, once again, it's not just that, like, I don't know if I want to die on the soapbox of like defending school shooters. I don't want people to be like, yeah, he said that it's not that big of a deal. Like it is a horrible tragedy that this is something that happens on a consistent basis in our country. Like a lot. Yeah, that is, it is terrible. But if we can find a way of educating the populace about this issue so that we can start to see, okay, here's the cross, here's the crossroads. 
that can come with education. I'm sorry, I don't think I'm even answering your question. Um, with education, let's say it's like, hey, we're going to educate the populace so that we can screen people better, so that we can get them treatment, so that we can help them to avoid getting to this point of school shooting. Um, cool. That's like the positive path is like everyone gets education and you don't think of it in like a negative way. It's just like, oh, like you have like some negative like ruminations, like we're going to get you into therapy and learn, like learn some coping techniques or you have like, you know, an anxiety disorder and we're going to help you learn to deal with that so that you like can be more present and like cope with highly anxious moments and like make more consistent like friendships and whatever that's the positive side the negative side is it's like well anyone with this could become a school shooter so now it's like a social stigma and we almost go backwards where it's like if someone has anxiety there is like a chance where they could become this so like we need to get them out of here and like isolate them they are a danger so it's just it's it's tricky. I I don't have any proposed solutions. I am not um I my heart goes out to the people who have to try to figure that out. Yeah, I don't know. Like are you saying though that there are there are certain disorders that are considered to lead to that outcome though or you're saying hypothetically if we had that knowledge. I think I'm speaking more hypothetically. I do think there are certain disorders. It's not just like anxiety or something like that. I think uh, like schizophrenia can kind of be a part of that. But it's also not just one. It's usually the people we see have several. I know I was reading of one instance of a guy who like had assaulted a governor, had shot them, and was in such a bad mental state that like they couldn't answer for their crimes. Like they couldn't plead guilty. Like they had to receive like weeks of mental health treatment to reach the point where they were like in the right state of mind to actually be able to confess to their crimes. So like, it's not a thing that someone just like, you know, wakes up and does it's, it's like a very slow crawl that gets someone to that point. And if we can catch them on the, on any point of the process of the crawl and help them help them, like we could see a big change, but it's identifying those things um, professionally and also like as a society in a way that also doesn't further ostracize those people. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense. I might just be rambling. Yeah, it just, I think it's tricky. And I'm only getting caught up on this because it's fresh in my mind. The C.S. Lewis book that we talked about last time. And then I read another one since then that uh, kind of talks about the same thing. And he, he kind of makes a point. He's talking about science and uh, he's not using this word, but like determinism. Um, mm-hmm. And he makes a point specifically about punishment. And C.S. Lewis's point is 
that we try to get rid of like punitive punishments and exchange them for remedial treatments and well, his he defined punitive so yeah so in, you do you know a bad thing whatever you uh punch assault somebody in the street so instead of okay now you go to jail for two years and then you're out that would be like punitive treatment in my understanding punitive punishment he says we're culturally exchanging that we're saying that that's a little too crude instead we're doing like remedial treatment which is more some of the language you're using of like we want to help you we want to treat you that sort of thing and his critique of that is that there's no end to it so in other words it's not hey you did this thing that we decided is bad and so for two years you're going to serve time that's the you know kind of rose-colored uh interpretation of how that works instead it's hey you got something wrong with you the state is going to help you and the part that's not said is like we get to determine when you're okay and this his point that i'm taking a long time to get to is that you could be in remedial treatment for the rest of your life and never Mm -hmm. be released which i think is not a bad point. And so that's what's like in my head as you're saying that I would almost rather us focus on living conditions. If that's the best way to say it, rather than identifying people who have something wrong with them. And obviously we need a mixture of all these sorts of things, like in the extreme cases, but rather than identifying in a person like, Oh, well you've got this trait that we think could lead to you being a murderer ask the questions, you know, what's going on in our society, in our homes, in our schools, in our whatever, that is helping these issues to fester and treating those. That's my, my thought. Would I don't know what you would say to that. No, like, I think that sounds like a much better. Yeah. I'm not saying that we need to screen people like biologically. Like there is like some biological like conditions that can lead to certain disorders. Um, but usually that's not like that more gives you like a higher chance of developing them. It's not like a guarantee. It's it's the like it's your social situation. It is your like cognitive like thought patterns it is it like you said it's kind of like your whole life that leads up to that thing it's not just well they were born this way or there's a lot of things that go into it so that might even be a better like that might be one of the ways that we can kind of as a society help people like my my fear would be that it's like we figure out some like really quick test to give students and if you fail that test randomly throughout your year, it's like, cool, uh, whatever happened to Johnny? Oh, he failed the test and they pulled him out of school. And now he's like at some remedial center, like you said, until someone says he's OK to leave, which like. When does that happen? Um, I do think a better 
a better way of going about it would be to have like more community tools, more like nonprofit involvement, more resources for students at schools so that there could be more screening done. Um, like not screening, not screen, like find the people and get them out, but just more people who can notice things and then care about students and have the time in their schedule to like lean in and help them and like engage with their parents and their families and like really help if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I, I understand that. Um, I know what you're saying. That was just sort of my piece I needed to throw out there because uh, we were talking about such an extreme example, but yeah, I even remember one time we took, I don't know if this was like an intro to psych class or something, but we took, even calling it a test would be too much. It was just a sheet of paper and a bunch of check boxes. And it was like, in the past 12 months, have you, you know, moved? Have you gotten married? Have you changed jobs? Have you lost a pet? Have you, you know, brought a pet home? Have you this? Have you that? Have you changed your diet? All of these things. And at the bottom, you just like added up like a stress score or something. Uh, and even that, like silly little piece of paper, there have been things so like I lost a pet this past year and I probably never would have considered that that for 12 months could be a source of stress. But the other day I was pretty stressed out and I just kind of paused and was like, you know what, Tim, you've, you've been going through a lot the last 12 months you have moved, you have school, you have lost a pet. And so uh, that little like piece of paper planted some positive thoughts in my head that I could come back to later and it gave you perspective. So I do think there is that. And I think on the positive and the negative side, it just comes down to like people and how they choose to implement it. And obviously it'll be very imperfect because that's how we are as people. But that doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't still good, good tools and good measures to use. That's cool. Huh? That's cool to hear that a, a little assessment like that kind of gave you those tools. Like it, it breeds hope that like, maybe this is something that we can do inside of schools or inside of workplaces to kind of help just help catch people C catch. You know what I mean by catch at this point, equip <laughs> them, help, like sure. help, help catch them from falling essentially. Like as they're as they're potentially progressing through a more stressful stage of life, if this tool, if this little reminder, if this little seed can help them and give them that coping mechanism, like awesome. Yeah. Uh, but let's catch let's swap off falling. of me. That's a better that's a better use of the word because catch definitely sounds like plucking you off the line. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um. But okay. What about your classes? I feel like last week you talked a lot and then I had to talk a little at the end. And I feel like this week we definitely switched. Uh, and I talked yeah. way too much. Um. No, that's this is good because I've been saying I want to bring something from history of science and the human uh, because I feel like I keep talking about the same few topics every week. And so I wanted to bring something from that class. And I I think I have something question mark. OK, uh, OK, so. But it might not be very good. It might not give us much to talk about. So I am 
I'm a okay. But yeah, in this class, and actually, weirdly enough, like three of my classes are all talking about magic at the moment. So history of science and the human, we're talking about it in like the uh, kind of coming out of the Middle Ages. And in history of the English language, we're reading uh, Dr. Faustus, which is a play that has to do with magic. And in C.S. Lewis, we're reading a book that has to do with magic. And so uh, interestingly enough, actually, I should be more precise. All three of these classes were talking about the relationship between science and magic. So Mm. just kind of peculiar that it's lining up that way. But yeah, so this isn't really like a, you know, quotable statement or takeaway or anything, but we're kind of just talking about the relationship between, as I said, science and magic. And for a lot of people in the class, for myself, you know, included, and maybe for, you know, if you're listening to this, those things don't seem related, right? Like science and magic kind of seem like polar opposites or i guess i should pose that as a question like do you see those things as being related what science and magic yeah i mean isn't the isn't the classic like uh the classic quote like something along the lines of the populace considers modern science to be like magic or a cutting edge science to be magic i mean we live in a we live in a society we live in a society uh, we live in a society where it's like we see a lot more technological progress so it's not like ooh magic but i don't know when you see like nikola tesla wielding electricity isn't that isn't there something inside you that goes whoa that kind of seems magical right Yeah, no, I I am not familiar with that quote. What that makes me think of, and this is not at all from the class, but one thing I've thought about before is how, uh, I don't, I really don't know the word for it, how micro our technology is. And what I mean by that is, obviously, you and I, we've lived through uh, the internet becoming a thing, the digital revolution. And we'd probably be really quick to say like how much life has changed, even just from the time we were kids. Right. But, Oh yeah. What I think about is that probably, you know, more so like when mom and dad were younger, uh, we were sending, like we sent people to space and those two things look completely different. Like sending people in a rocket up to the moon, that looks really big. The, and the technological advancements of that day literally had like flames shooting out of the bottom of them. Whereas for me, technology is like I can be watching a YouTube video on my phone and throw it up on my TV with one button. And then I am leaving to go to work. And so I walk out in my car and the same YouTube video starts playing in my car automatically. You know what I mean? Hmm. So it's like we've had crazy advancements, but they're like very, they're invisible to the eye. Whereas 
we're not like and sending a, someone to the moon but we're yeah, having there's, like there's seamless, not like an equivalent of that it's almost like i heard somebody say that like 20 or 30 years ago when people started dabbling with like vr technology in this like really clunky way if you listen to how they talked about it like in the future you're going to have like these digital file filing cabinets that can follow you wherever and you can store all your information in them and you'll be able to like watch any movie you want like they were thinking that this would be a world that you strap to your head and your hands but really what they were talking about has become our cell phone like we truly live in a virtual reality like we have it we can have it with us on our phone like all the time and when i heard that i was like whoa that blows my mind to think about yeah the other that reminds me i forget who i heard say this but it was related to like the metaverse conversation and kind of very similar thing to what you're saying like people who you know mark zuckerberg who's going all in on the metaverse, everybody talks about it as if it's going to be glasses and goggles. And there's going to be this whole augmented reality world that you see. And they're, you know, throwing billions of dollars into that bet. But what this person was saying was in their view, they're like, they're missing the point completely because we already have a metaverse yeah they're like go to the grocery store go to a college and every single person has headphones in and they are listening to podcasts they're reading books they're listening to music and so this person was saying like that mark zuckerberg is missing it by thinking it has to be a visual thing we already have the metaverse it's called listening to podcasts while you run or while you go to the grocery store. And I was like, that's, that's an interesting thought because I do, I go shop and I'm like in a completely other world, just listening to whatever I'm listening to. Yeah. I don't need to digitally go to Walmart like visually and like play a game with gloves to do my shopping and like check out. Like instead I'll just go to the store and while I'm in line, I'll scroll through social media. I'll like listen to a YouTube video when I'm walking around. I I think you used a word that I should have used augmented. Like our actual reality is already augmented. So like, why do we need a virtual, like a clunky kind of bad virtual reality? Yeah, it's, and I'm not one to, You know, we could be wrong in 10, 20 years. Maybe everybody is using that technology. But if I had to guess, I don't I don't think that's where it goes is like the visual version of it. Like you're saying the augmented you have these contact lenses that that give a bunch of imagery that you wouldn't otherwise see. But I don't know. That could be me. But. So so going back to the the magic and science thing uh kind of the the basic exercise we did is just writing the four words on the board the professor uh wrote kind of like so four quadrants essentially and they were magic religion science and technology 
And so in this exercise, it's like, if you had to put these in pairs, how would you connect them? And to a modern mind, it kind of seems pretty obvious. I think that people would probably connect science and technology and that would leave, they would probably connect magic and religion as being the most connected. Um, and so that's that. What he asked us to do was, you know, if you had to connect them in different pairings, how would you justify that? So like if you had to connect magic with technology, what would you say? Hmm. And the answer to that might be like, okay, well, both of these things are attempts to assert control over the environment, you know, whether that's by casting a spell or whether that's by creating a lever. These are tools that allow us to, you know, manipulate our surroundings better. That might be how you justify that one or like religion and, um, Oh, okay. So religion and science, you could say, well, these are explorations of reality. These are Mm -hmm. explorations of the world and they look different, but they're trying to get down to the bottom of things. And so, like I said, that's not, it's not like a, there's no quotable statement from that, but by doing that exercise and by trying to sort of put those in different pairings, it helps you to step back a little bit and understand through history because we're studying the history of science and medicine and astrology and astronomy and all those sorts of things. It kind of helps you. It it puts you in a better frame of mind to be able to understand like how alchemy could be this magical practice that then turns into chemistry that we still use today. Huh. That's like, I don't know. That that's kind of that's kind of cool. I I never like trying to link those things in other ways. Like I I, I think at first I was like, well, what are you going to connect with religion, like science? But they really are both asking very meaning based questions. Like ultimately, yeah. like more theoretical science wants to ask like, <clears throat> excuse me, where do we come from? How do we get here? What are we made of? What's our purpose? And like religion's asking a lot of that same question. Um, and we are, we live in the, you know, in enlightenment and scientific revolution. We are downstream from that. And in this class, we're just starting to get to that where observation becomes the main thing. And like the, oh man, like 16th or 17th century. But prior to that, science was more philosophical. Like it's, it's actually sort of funny. Hmm. There'll be these people writing about how the body works and they aren't basing it off of, you know, dissections and anatomy and the parts of the body. They haven't opened up anything to see how it works. They're just like reasoning and opining like, well, obviously the heart and the humors and the pure spirit, and it is more like religion in that sense. Uh, that's what science more so was for a really long time. Or there was also 
a long period of time, or at least a lot of ways in which science was a lot like magic, you know, in the sense that you would apply certain things to wounds or you would eat certain things and see if you got better. And if you think of it that way, that's really not all that different from like a spell. Like you're kind of throwing things in the pot and seeing what works. And so, yeah, it is just like an interesting, interesting exploration to, to go through. Hmm. I know I, um, I recently heard of a old, well, old, I think it was like in 2004, but this like RPG game that was set in a magical world as it was undergoing the industrial revolution. And I was listening to people talk about it and it was a really cool blend. This is more for your advanced fantasy writing class, but this practice reminds me of it because like, in this game, there's this tension between like magic and technology. Like you could spend years and years and years to learn magic and master this spell and, you know, learn how to teleport. Or you could get on a train and just ride there. But the tension exists because like you can't if you have like magical artifacts or if you cast a spell on a train, like the way in that world it works is that like magic makes the natural laws around it fuzzy. Um, So like you cast a small spell in your house and like your clock might stop working. Um, But you cast like a spell on a train And you might derail the entire thing or cause the engine to overheat and explode or, you know, a bunch of drastic stuff like that. So it's kind of like you see that there's people who still practice magic in society, but they're kind of being pushed out by like the new way to solve problems, which is technology, the new way to control the environment in a more consistent and feasible manner. It might not be as grand as magic, but it's more consistent. I just thought that was a, a cool way of handling that in like a fantasy world. Yeah, actually, it's really funny you bring that up because that is how it connects to uh, American literature is in that class. We're talking about postmodern literature and magical realism is a genre that popped up during that time. Wait, what's magical realism? And so I wonder, uh, magical realism is when, so it's not fantasy where you're living in, you know, Ireland and there's dwarves and creatures and talking animals and everything. It's not fantasy like Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's, It's a realistic setting, but with one thing, one feature that is magical. So like... The well, I'm never mind, I don't want to say that, but uh, even like Squid Games is a little bit it's that's like the biggest pop cultural one I can think of, even though there's no magic in that. But in Squid Games, it's a normal modern day world, but just with this one crazy 
presupposition and you kind of have to like suspend your disbelief for that. But when you're watching the show, you're like, oh, well, this is how humans would react. And this is how the police would react. And this is how, you know, so it's like it's a mix of fantasy and realism. So kind of like you don't see a lot in Harry Potter, but it exists in Harry Potter. We're like, well, there is this is the real world. Like they'll go to London. But you, you. Yeah. But there's also this there's wizards who are just like the rest of the populace doesn't know about. I think that's definitely still fantasy, though. The point of the point of magical realism is like you take the real world and you change this one thing. And that's like a plot device to show something about human nature. So in that video game you're talking about, what what I'm assuming is that like the it's probably a critique on religion or something because we have this new technology, but when you use the old magic, it kind of like diminishes the world. So I'm assuming that is saying something about religion. I don't know exactly, but that would be like an example of more something in the realm of magical realism. It's like it's it's our world with one thing changed that will allow us to make commentary on society. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of which, actually not exactly speaking of which I, I did want to say this and then maybe we'll wrap it up. But the last episode we talked about the abolition of man, that CS Lewis book. Yes. And this that we just wrapped was it's called that hideous strength. So C.S. Lewis wrote three. I don't know if you would call them science fiction or fantasy or probably both. There's like there are wizards and magic and like they go to space and all of this sort of stuff. So we read the last book of the trilogy and it correlates a lot with the abolition of man in terms of like the messages and the themes. It's kind of like the fiction version of that book. Mm-hmm. I just finished reading it last night. I I would be curious for you to read it and to get your thoughts on it from a purely, I was saying this actually in like my reading response. I would want to get the opinion of somebody who reads more fantasy books because I was reading it. And like I said, he incorporates fantasy and sci-fi and Christianity is a big part of it. Like <laughs> in one line, they'll be talking about like, quick, we got to go up to space uh, to Merlin. go to youth camp. <laughs> well, no, like literally they're having a conversation about like Merlin and angels and all these things that have these crazy names. And one of the characters is like, but are they Christians? <laughs> and it's just, so he, he pulls in a lot of stuff and I, it kind of makes my head spin a little bit, but I'm also not an expert on the genre and not that you are either, but I know you read a lot of like Terry. Is it Pratchett? Good old Terry Pratchett. Yeah. So I'd be, I would love to get the sniff test from you. If you ever had time to read it. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to send me the, what's the name of the book again or the series? Uh, that hideous strength. Yeah. I could just, I can lend you the book when, when I see you. Well, I might even just try to find the audiobook. I'll add it to my augmented oh, right. reality. That 
is if you're going to do it that way, you might start at the beginning of the trilogy because we just read the third one because it has to do with the intersection of magic and science. But yeah, however you want to do it. But I, I thought it was interesting. You know, now you say Terry Pratchett, I think he would be more of a example of what you're talking about before with like change one thing in reality. And that's how people to react because. It's kind of like he's using magic. In that world, in place of technology. Until eventually he starts incorporating technology to then make fun of magic. So like you're mm. you're learning about like I'm trying to think in the most recent book. Okay, so in the most recent book, a dragon gets summoned back into the world. They'd all been dead. Um, the city is kind of run by a counselor, not a king, a counselor. Um, and he's not it's not a great city, but it's better than it was under the kings. And this dragon gets summoned and he essentially makes himself king and they use this dragon to kind of poke fun at like monarchy and just sorry, motorcycle went by. Um, so is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Where it's like, take a medieval setting, throw in a dragon, make the dragon, the king and see like how humans would react to that situation. Cause when a dragon's being tyrannical, it's like, well, of course it's a dragon. But then when you think about it, it's like, well, that's kind of what a human king would do, too. It's like, well, interesting. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry to uh, I feel like I keep shutting you down, but I think that's still too far away from real life. OK, so here, here's what I was going to say earlier that I didn't want to say, but I'll just be. Economical of what I what I release but the book I'm writing in advanced fiction the novel and you know what it's about it is magical realism so it's a completely modern world the guy lives in a city and he has a phone and a laptop and he works a job but the one thing that's different is the ambulances mm -hmm. and that's where I don't want to say anymore yeah but you kind of have to like like, I don't really explain exactly how the ambulances work the way they work. Like, you kind of just have to take it on faith. But changing that one thing then opens up the story. That's like magical realism. It's like literally, it could be you or I that this is happening to. So, and, I don't and know. If you That's, want to, we can even, as I start t like talking back into Terry Pratchett, I can just bring the volume down there. Ah, no, I don't. It's it's whatever. If anybody's listening to this, just hold tight and buy my book if it ever comes out. Boom. Perfect. I, I need to make some money. Yeah. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys learned something new. So excited you guys are here joining us. I know that that sounds so canned, but seriously, we're both excited about being in school. And if you guys can get some enjoyment out of that as well, hey, that's an added benefit. We'll see you guys on the next one after we get done with some more homework.